everybody, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. I'm Wendy. And we're back with you with an all new episode. And before we get started, we want to do a little listener spotlight. We received a message from Chloe from Australia. She wanted to thank us for covering her sister's case. Chloe is the older sister to Tiffany Ann Taylor, a case we covered in season two, I believe episode 62. I did that with my friend Yvette. Mm. That, that time. A vet who doesn't really like pitch hitting, but she did that day. She did great. And we did with the murder with another young lady from Australia who was murdered around the same time, Jade Kendall. So Chloe informed us that Tiffany's murderer, Rodney Wayne Williams, was in the process of having a retrial for Tiffany's murder. Apparently, the original trial judge had committed some kind of error in their jury instruction, and that allowed him to win his appeal for a retrial. Tiffany was murdered in 2015, and Williams was originally convicted in 2020. And now I'm happy to report he's been reconvicted after a three-week trial, and this was just at the end of October. So since this is his second conviction for murder, the first being in 1978 after he stabbed to death his elderly neighbor, Williams will have to serve at least 30 years now before he's able to apply for parole. He's currently 68. Mm, Okay, so So, he'll be in forever. Hopefully. I think that's pretty much what the trial judge (laughs) said to him. Like, well, you're probably going to die in prison. So our positive thoughts and warm wishes go out to Tiffany's family for having to not only grieve her loss, but to go through this whole trial again. Mm -hmm. And to this day, Tiffany's body has never been found. So we hope that also someday her family can receive that final closure. I read an article where Chloe mentioned, you know, asked him to unburden himself and tell them where Tiffany is. I hope so. I do. I really hope that he he will come clean and let the family know that. And we have some other listener spotlights. We do. You guys have been chatty this week. We love it. Lena or Lena A, she mentioned finding our show on her Instagram story. So thank you for being a new listener and for letting other people know you enjoy Criminal Discourse. And then we have Micah H from Dayton, Ohio, our neighbors to the West. Micah talked about enjoying listening to our podcast at work. They reached out on our website. So thank you, Micah, for doing that. We love little messages, how you listen to us, where, what you like to hear what kind of cases you enjoy, you can reach out to us like Micah did on our website. That's criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. Fill out the contact form there. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You can also reach out on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Google it, Criminal Discourse Podcast. Find us, hook up, whatever your preferred method is. We're not on TikTok yet, but maybe. (laughs) Someday. (laughs) Someday. (laughs) All right, Trish. And I love how Mike have stumbled upon us because that's how most people find us. That is. They stumble. We have people getting suggestions on Pandora, Spotify. Keep it coming. Let us know, too. That helps us know where um, where our listeners are coming from. That's helpful information for us. Yes. Okay. Well, are you ready? I'm ready. I'm loving the the sultry, smoky well, November that is, voice. That is mostly due to the upper respiratory infection <laughs> I've been fighting. So thank you for that. Yes, I've been. Uh, I apologize in advance if I'm sounding a little different. It is not the amplifier that we are using. It, it is me getting over my illness. I'm into it. Okay. Well, there we go. I'll make it work. <laughs> All right. So this episode actually came about while watching an old episode of Cold Justice. I'm sorry. This is my favorite serial show to watch. Oh my gosh, Cold Justice. 
Yes. Ugh. So this took place from season three from Pocatello, Idaho. Now, Kelly Siegler, a former Texas prosecutor, and Yolanda McClary, a former crime scene investigator, who I believed Marg Helgenberger's character was based after in the original CSI. Oh, really? TV show. Yeah. Yes. <sighs> were reviewing the evidence from a murder of Nori Jones, who was murdered in September 2004. Now, Nori was found murdered in her first floor bedroom, having been stabbed in her throat cut. She was found lying face down on her bed with no clothes on. Now, it didn't appear at the time that she had been sexually assaulted, though, from the kit they had run. So over 250 pieces of evidence were collected and processed with the technology at the time, but no one was arrested and brought to justice. Now, you know, if you've watched Cold Justice, you know that Kelly and her team are usually called in by local investigators who want to get a fresh pair of eyes on the case. These are cases that have gone cold. And one of the things that they do is they sit down and they talk about possible suspects first. Usually she has a nice little whiteboard set up and they have pictures of the suspects and she writes details as to why they're suspects. So there were three suspects in Nori's murder. One was Robert Spillett. He was a parolee who had become obsessed with Nori uh, from her workplace interaction. So Nori worked for a government job placement program. So him being a parolee had come in. Her job is to help individuals find work and he became obsessed with her. In that episode, she even went so far to get a fake wedding ring to wear around. To She she was dating someone at the time. They weren't engaged yet, but she just thought, okay, at least this cheap little ring will be like, you know, already married, dude. The other man was Brad Comfer, who had left a fingerprint on her back door, but no other evidence was found in the house from him. And one other suspect was 14-year-old neighbor by the name of Tori Amachek. Now, what put him on the suspect list was his involvement in a murder just two years later. And that is the episode we're going to cover today. Mm. But we'll get back to Nori Jones's murder at the end of the episode. I won't leave you hanging. Oh, a little tease. So Pocatello, Idaho is located in Bannock County in the southeastern part of the state. Pocatello is named after the 19th century Shoshone tribal chief, Chief Pocatello. Pocatello became known as the gateway to the Northwest as settlers traveled along the Oregon Trail, which ran just south of town. Now, in 2007, Pocatello was named by Forbes magazine as one of the best small places for business and careers. It is also home to the Idaho State University and its mascot, Benny the Bengal. There are no Bengals, unless they're in a zoo, in Idaho, (laughs) which I found interesting. I'm like, that's an interesting mascot. On the afternoon of Sunday, September 24th, 2006, the aunt and uncle of 16-year-old Cassie Jo Stoddart returned to their home on Whispering Cliffs Drive. Cassie had been house pet-sitting for her relatives since Friday evening. Now, their home on Whispering Cliffs Drive, just to describe it to you, was a raised ranch-style home with an exposed basement. So that had an entrance you could go into from the outside. And then you could also take upstairs to the deck main living area. So that also so had, I think that would be considered the main entryway. And that led into the main living area. And Cassie was discovered lying on the floor of the living room in a large pool of blood. Now, investigators arrived on scene after being notified by 911 dispatcher, as did Cassie's mother, Anna. Anna would tell investigators that she dropped Cassie and her boyfriend, Matt Beckham, off on Friday evening around 5.30 p.m. And Anna last talked to Cassie around 9.30 that evening just to check in. Cassie told her they were watching a movie and she was okay and that she would talk to her tomorrow. 
Anna sadly would go on to say that she had gotten sidetracked through the weekend and didn't get a chance to call Cassie, but not worrying because Cassie was a responsible young woman, and this was Bocatello. So State Police Lieutenant Robert Roush was one of the first investigators on the scene, and examining the property and home, he could see that there was no signs of forced entry. He could also tell that Cassie had put up a hell of a fight due to her defensive wounds, including the almost loss of a finger. Oh my gosh. She had several deep lacerations and stab wounds. There were no murder weapons found at the scene. Captain John Gansky of the Idaho State Police was called in. Investigators were left to wonder what the motive was for her murder. It didn't appear to be a burglary or home invasion, and Cassie didn't appear to be a victim of a sexual assault. Cassie's autopsy would show that she had been stabbed close to 30 times, with 12 of those wounds being potentially fatal. Mm. A second examination would show that two different knives had been used. One knife with a serrated blade had inflicted 11 of the 12 potentially fatal stab wounds. The second knife, a single non-serrated blade, inflicted one of the potential fatal wounds, and I believe that might have been to the right ventricle of her heart. Mm. And that knife had also inflicted other non-fatal wounds. So investigators began piecing together the last hours of Cassie's life, starting on September 22, 2006. Cassie's mother would tell authorities that she dropped Cassie off at Pocatello High School around 8 a.m. that morning. Cassie was a junior and described as a good student who was well-liked and didn't appear to have any problems with anybody. Now, Cassie would be captured on video by two of her classmates around 8.30 a.m. while she was at her locker. And when I say video, I mean like a handheld video recorder. Oh, not surveillance. No, not surveillance. This was 2006, so not as popular as it is today. She would go on to follow her schedule for the rest of the day and be picked up by Anna around 3.45 p.m. along with her boyfriend, Matt. Anna would take Cassie and Matt over to Whispering Cliffs Drive, again dropping them off around 5.30 p.m. so she could take care of the two cats and two dogs her relatives owned. Anna made sure to remind Cassie and Matt of the rules, because you're (laughs) dropping two teenagers off alone, and that she would check in with them later that evening. Now, Matt was not going to be spending the night as his mother would be picking him up later. At 9.30 p.m., Anna called and Cassie told her they were watching Kill Bill 2 and she would call her mom the next day. However, Cassie never made any calls on Saturday or Sunday and no one could reach Cassie after Friday. So investigators decided, of course, to talk to Matt Beckham, as he may have been one of the last people to see her alive. Now, while they were doing this, the forensic team was going over the home looking for any evidence that might lead them to her killer or killers, because at the time they didn't have the autopsy results. Right. They didn't know there were two sets of knives. It was during their first conversation with Matt that he told investigators that around 10 p.m., the electricity had gone off for several minutes. Neither he nor Cassie wanted to go to the basement to check out what was going on as they were scared, especially with the family dog standing at the top of the basement stairs growling down into the darkness. Well, yeah. I'd be like, no, thank you. (laughs) Investigators informed the forensics team to check out the fuse box as they didn't understand the reason for the electricity going out as there were no community outages reported. Forensics would find a fingerprint on the fuse box that would match someone close to Cassie, that of her mother's boyfriend, Victor. Now, Victor would tell investigators that he had done some electrical work at the home, so yeah, you should expect to find my prints there. And Victor also had an alibi that checked out. He had apparently been at a neighbor's house playing video games late into the night. The old video game alibi. (laughs) That was actually an alibi. (laughs) 
So investigators in their conversation with Matt found out that he'd been picked up by his mother around 11 p.m. on Friday. He, of course, when the electricity went out initially, had called his mother and he asked if he could spend the night because Cassie was a bit scared. They were a bit freaked out. Mm -hmm. However, mom was like, no, I'm still (laughs) coming to pick you up. But she did offer to have Cassie spend the night at their house and she would bring her back the next day to take care of the pets. Good. But Cassie declined as she felt she needed to stay as it was her responsibility to watch her aunt and uncle's place. So Matt would tell investigators that he had tried to call Cassie around 12.30 a.m. and got no answer. So all of his attempts would go unanswered into the next day. Although investigators thought Matt was not being deceitful, they asked him to take a polygraph examination, which he agreed to. Matt passed his examination, showing no signs of deception. It was during his post-polygraph interview that Matt would give investigators two more names of persons that had contact with Cassie Friday evening. Matt told investigators that two of his friends, Tori Imachek and Brian Draper, had come over to the Whispering Cliffs Drive home around 8.30 p.m. to watch movies with the couple. The pair had watched a movie with them for a while, had taken a tour of the house, and then had left around 9.30 p.m. saying they were going to a movie in town. So Captain Gatsky contacted Amachek and his father and conducted an interview at their home. Amachek told detectives that he and Draper had gone over to Cassie's relative's house around 8.30 for what they thought was going to be a party, but it just turned out to be them. So they decided to watch a movie for a little bit, and then they left around 9.30 to go watch their own movie. And then afterwards, the pair went back to Amachek's house where they remained for the rest of the night. So investigators turned their attention to Draper, who agreed to talk to police, and he confirmed that he and Amachek did go to the Whispering Cliffs Drive home, watched a movie with Cassie and Matt, left around 9.30, and went to see the movie Pulse, which was playing at the local theater. So investigators decided to go to the local theater just to verify their stories, and they talked to a classmate of Amachek and Draper who knew them, who happened to be working that evening of Friday, September 22nd. She would tell investigators that the pair were not there that night. Uh Uh-oh. It was during Draper's second interview on the evening of September 26th that when asked to describe the plot of the movie, Draper was unable to do so. Uh Uh-oh. Got a lot of uppos there, but yes, you are correct. (laughs) When confronted by police that they didn't believe his story, he admitted that, well, we didn't go to the movies. Instead, we were breaking into cars. Oh, my gosh. So Draper denied hurting Cassie and even agreed to take a polygraph test. Now, this was to be set up for Wednesday, September 27th. So this is moving relatively quick. Mm -hmm. She's discovered on Sunday. They're talking to these individuals Monday and Tuesday. And now Wednesday, the polygraph set up for. So prior to the polygraph, detectives went to Draper's residence, where his parents consented to a search. Now, in Draper's bedroom, they found a knife sheath but no knife. Draper told detectives that it belonged to a friend of his, but he didn't know if the friend had the knife or not. (sighs) So Draper's third interview is conducted Wednesday, September 27th at the station with his parents. And again, he has read his Miranda rights. Now, this is pre-polygraph. They don't even get to the polygraph. This time, Draper admitted that he and Amichek had unlocked the door to the basement when they went on their tour of the house with plans on returning and scaring Cassie and Matt. They had turned off the power, hoping Matt and Cassie would come down to the basement, but they didn't. They would turn the power back on after a few minutes. But the pair didn't leave. They stayed in the basement until after Matt left around 11 p.m. Once again, they turned the power off. But Cassie didn't come downstairs. That is when the pair went upstairs, wearing a mask, black clothing, 
gloves, and carrying two knives. Draper said he thought they were just going to scare her. Draper then tells detectives that things got crazy. When Amichek started to repeatedly stab Cassie, Draper denied stabbing Cassie, putting all the blame onto Amichek. Afterwards, he said the pair went back downstairs and left through the basement door. Next, Draper told detectives that they then went to Black Rock Canyon and buried the evidence of their crime. Draper, along with his father and detectives, drove out to Black Rock Canyon. This was approximately 15 miles south of Whispering Cliffs Drive. Detectives recovered the following items. A pair of black boots, stick matches, a pair of rubber gloves, a pair of fingerless gloves, a melted brown hydrogen peroxide bottle, a multicolored mask, a large dagger-type knife with a sheaf, a silver black-handled knife with the signature of Sloan written on the side, a small dagger-type knife with a sheaf, a damaged Sony videotape, a black-handled serrated folding knife, later DNA testing would reveal Cassie's blood present, partially burned piece of paper with writing on it, a red and white mask, which would later DNA testing show Amichek's DNA on it, a pair of partially burned Puma brand gloves that appeared to be soaked in blood, a blue plastic garbage bag, a partially burned Calvin Klein black dress shirt, Cassie's blood would be found on the cuff, a partially burned black long sleeve Hager brand dress shirt, a white and gray sock, and a small piece of black cord. Brian Draper was placed under arrest on September 27th, and imprisoned in the Bannock County Jail with a bond set at a million dollars. So this isn't Pennsylvania case with teenagers. They didn't give him a deal and arrest the other one instead. No, <laughs> Mm-mm. no. Mm-mm. So Tori Amichek and his parents were asked to come down to the station for a formal interview, which they agreed to. Amichek didn't know that authorities had gotten a confession from Draper, nor the evidence that had been collected at Black Rock Canyon. So when detectives started asking Amichek questions about having been seen at the Common Sense convenience store or traveling out to Black Rock Canyon, Amichek asked for an attorney. So the interview was over. But if Amichek thought that he was going to be going home, he would be wrong. Detectives placed Amichek under arrest and charged him with first-degree murder. His bond was also set at $1 million. So authorities were hoping that the crime lab would be able to repair the damaged videotape. And they were able to. And police had no idea what they were about to discover. The tape starts out at 8.28 a.m. on September 22, 2006, with Cassie standing at her locker. And Draper is heard on the tape talking to her. Draper and Amichek would skip their fourth period class and go to the library around 12, 12 p.m. There they would record themselves again, making a death list of victims and solidifying their plans for the night. They were looking for a victim that would be alone, and unfortunately, Cassie was that victim. Draper can be heard on the tape stating, As sad as it may be, she's our friend. But you know what? We all make sacrifices. He goes on to say, Our first victim is going to be Cassie Stoddard. She's going to be alone in a big dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? I mean, like, holy shit, dude. Emichek added, I'm horny just thinking about it. The video would show Draper and Emichek in the car after having left Whispering Cliffs Drive, and this was around 9.50 p.m. So they had come in, watched the movie a little bit, taken a tour, unlocked the door. Hey, we're going to go to our own movie, and then left. So they're hanging out watching Kill Bill 2 with these two, knowing what they're going to be doing. It. They knew all day. 
Yes. Okay. The time is around 9.50 p.m. This again is on September 22nd. So this part of the tape shows the two killers talking about returning into the residence and killing their two friends. Draper states, we're here in his car. The time is 9.50 p.m. on September 22nd, 2006. Um, unfortunately, we have the grueling task of killing our two friends, and they're right in that house down the street. In reading all of the information on this case, it got a little confusing because they did hide out in the basement for a time. So when they left to say they were going to the movie, they had they had left, but they had come back in. And that is when they turned off the lights, the electricity initially the first time. And then they just stayed there in the house till Matt left. So had Matt not left, he would have been the second victim. At 11.31 p.m., another recording. This time the pair talking about having just killed Cassie and how hyped up they were. Draper is heard as saying, I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. Adam and Jack added, I'm shaking. I stabbed her in the throat. Draper goes on to say, and I saw her lifeless body just disappear. Dude, I killed Cassie. That felt like it wasn't even real. I mean, it went by so fast. Adam Chuck says, shut the fuck up. We gotta get our act straight. So after these last statements, the pair would stop at a convenience store to purchase matches and a bottle of hydrogen peroxide and make their way to Black Rock Canyon, where they set up a fire thinking that it would destroy all the evidence. It clearly didn't, so they buried the rest of it. Draper would have a fourth interview with detectives on Thursday the 28th. Draper was read his Miranda rights once again and agreed to talk to detectives. It was during this interview Draper repeated that Amachek was the only person to have stabbed Cassie. But after further questioning, he did admit that Adamchek ordered him to stab her. And he did stab Cassie, he says, four times in the leg and chest areas. Draper claimed that Adamchek said, you need to stab her, you need to stab her, and it's not going to work, she has to die. This interview ended with Draper asked to see his parents. So Draper and Amachek would be tried separately, each charged with one count of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. Each was placing the blame for Cassie's murder on the other. At both of their trials, the medical examiner who performed Cassie's autopsy testified to the number of stab wounds Cassie had and that it was the stab wounds to her trunk and torso that had the majority of her fatal wounds. And it was the wound to the right ventricle of the heart believed to be the final blow. Mm-hmm. A forensic pathologist testified that there were at least two knives used and that the serrated knife had caused the majority of the fatal wounds. The murder weapons used had been purchased at a pawn shop by 18-year-old Joe Lucero, who Adam Check had contacted on August 31st, 2006, asking him if he would buy the knives for him. Because, of course, they were only 16 at the time. Guys, never buy weapons for a friend, ever. That is a criminal discourse life tip. <sighs> the pair, along with Draker, went to the local pawn shop, with Adam Check picking out one knife and Draper selecting three others, paying a total of $45. Now, at Draper's trial, prosecutors would reveal that Draper was inspired by Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the Columbine High School mass killers. Draper would give an interview to Dateline. They have a new segment called The Last Day, and this is the case of Casey Joe Stoddart, which aired in July 2022, and what he would say would back up the prosecutor's theory. Draper told Dateline that he and Adam Check were two teens living a horror movie fantasy, and that before meeting Adam Check, he was always surfing chat rooms related to school shootings, especially Columbine. His goal was to emulate his idols. Yeah, the videotapes, the kill list. Although it's interesting to me that they tried to burn the videotape 
instead of like that should have been their Tomei for police to find afterward or something. Yeah, they they try to destroy everything. Draper goes on to say that in middle school, he felt like a loser and had a stutter that made him a target for bullies. When he met Amacek after moving to Pocatello, they had started talking about committing murder, similar to the Scream movie franchise, as Amacek was a horror movie fan. Cassie's murder is also known as the Scream murder for this reason. So if you remember that opening scene with Drew Barrymore, she's alone in the house waiting for her boyfriend to come over. She gets the phone call. Do you like scary movies? And, you know, she gets terrorized there, finds her boyfriend, you know, dead in the backyard. And then, of course, she is eventually murdered. That was what they were kind of trying to recreate by getting Matt to come downstairs to check out why the power went out, Mm -hmm. kill him terrorize her and eventually kill her. Yeah. So Draper was convicted on both counts on April 17th, 2007, and Adam Check on June 8th, 2007. Both received mandatory life sentences without the possibility of parole, plus 30 years for the conspiracy charge. Both Adam Check and Draper filed appeals with Draper's conviction for conspiracy actually being vacated in 2011 due to erroneous jury instructions. However, the life imprisonment without the possibility of parole was not vacated. Good. In July 2015, Adam Check sought post-conviction relief on claims of ineffective counsel. That was denied, as was his appeal to the Idaho Supreme Court in December 2017. Adam Check then filed a writ of habeas corpus in July 2018, seeking a new sentencing hearing in light of the United States Supreme Court decision that juveniles convicted of offenses including murder, should not receive the death penalty or life sentences without the possibility of parole, as this would be unconstitutional. So that decision came down in 2012 in Miller versus Alabama. In 2016, in Montgomery and Louisiana, the United States Supreme Court said that their 2012 decision had to be replied retroactively. So that would include these two as they committed murders when they were 16. Uh-huh. In November 2019, that writ, however, was denied. The U.S. District Court ruled that evidence supports Amacek's murder conviction and that the Idaho Supreme Court did not err in affirming his life sentence without parole. In December 2017, Amacek then appealed to the 9th District Court, which upheld his original sentence, and this was as of March 24, 2022. So this decision was unpublished, so no explanation was given why the 9th Circuit Court of Appeals did not give him relief. So Amacek still has the right to appeal to the United States Supreme Court, but I do not know or could not find anything in regards to where he is with that. And I haven't read anything about Draper seeking these appeals based upon the Miller versus Alabama. So it'll be interesting if the Supreme Court takes it up. I appreciate how Idaho is handling this after so many Pennsylvania cases where I'm like, are you serious? (laughs) You let them just walk away. Well, and I'm not an attorney. I'm not a legal scholar, so if anybody is, let us know, reach out to us. But from what I can understand, I think Idaho was able to say their crimes were so egregious, Mm -hmm. so that to give them the possibility of parole puts the community in danger Mm -hmm. at a larger risk. Yeah. And that's my understanding of it, that that's the little loophole, at least in Idaho, that they're able to say, no, no, this is fine. This is the appropriate sentence because of what you did. Because to this day, I mean, Draper seems to, and he's the only one that's really given interviews. He's 
express remorse. He's owned up to some of it. I don't know. And I could not find, because I know you probably have a question, well, who held which knife? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question, because they've both kind of blamed each other. I could not find anything that specifically said who had what knife. But if you go back to Amacek's video recount, where he Mm -hmm. says, I just cut her throat, you know, to me, that sounds more serrated. Like that, because the serrated one did 11 of the 12 potentially stab wounds, and it was the non-serrated that did the right ventricle to the heart, the Mm -hmm. other potentially fatal one. Mm -hmm. So to me, only based upon that, do I think maybe he held the serrated knife over Draper. But importantly, both knives, it's likely that each one held a different knife. They didn't switch in the middle. No. And then importantly, both knives ultimately inflicted fatal or potentially fatal wounds. So yes. Hence why they got the same, same charges. So to get back to Nori Jones, I did not want to leave you hanging. Please don't. (laughs) So you remember her case was just two years before Cassie's murder. And their cases were similar in that both were killed by nighttime intruders with no apparent enemies. And the murder weapon was a knife. Now, with advancements in DNA testing, Kelly's team was able to find that DNA taken from under Nori's fingernail matched Brad Comfer. In re-examining the sexual assault kit taken at the time, another match was made to Comfer. So he has a fingerprint that puts him in the home. He also has these DNA matches. Now, Brad Comfer was arrested and charged with felony first-degree murder. Investigators believe that Brad had seen Nori at her job as he had used the job placement services. He had followed her home and then tampered with a porch light before breaking into her home on September 28, 2004. Comfer's jury trial is to begin on January 23rd, 2023. He has been in jail now for over eight years due to his competency level. Mm. So in Idaho, courts must prove that a defendant has criminal intent and that they can understand the charges against them. Comfort remained in custody until he was deemed competent to stand trial. However, he will not be eligible for the death penalty as he was found to be intellectually disabled by Judge Stephen Dunn. And I don't know what that intellectually disabled means. I couldn't find if that meant his IQ level or that meant because of mental illness or that meant because of a traumatic brain injury. I'm not sure. But because he does have that distinction, he cannot get the death penalty for her murder. Wow. So one of Cassie's killers was Nori Jones's neighbor, but incredibly not also her murderer. Correct. If you went out the back of Nori's house, apparently looking diagonal to the right, I think was Amachek's backyard. So I guess if you're living in this town in rural Idaho, you think you're safe. Look at this, at least this crazy time period in the early 2000s. Well, at the time, too, on the cold case episode, and I have a link in the show notes to that episode, that it just wasn't a a place that they saw maybe a murder a year. Mm -hmm. That's it. And then boom, these kind of back. And these, right, two years later. But they weren't random. This was Nori Jones. It was someone she knew from work with Cassie. It was a classmate. But I'd say Nori's was more random, only in the fact that he didn't have a long relationship with her. It's not like he kept going in and going in and going in. I think he he went in, he saw her, he stalked her a bit, and then made his move. In Cassie's case, these were classmates. These were people she considered friends. Right. And she wasn't potentially, if you read through the appeals, and if you want to read through it, I have links in the show notes. Oh, my. They give a transcript of 
some of the conversations between Draper and Amacek that they video recorded. Mm. And it, it jumps around. It's a bit confusing at times, but it is clearly, you can see why Idaho deems these two individuals incorrigible. Mm -hmm. But they had other victims planned that they caught, they reference a Jane Doe one that they were going to go out to her house first before going over to Cassie's to see if she was alone. And then there potentially there was a Jane Doe 2 picked out also. Like they were planning to go on a massive killing spree. They talked about being bigger than Ted Bundy. They talked about being bigger than the, you know, Hillside Stranglers, that this was going to be their their mark, right? Their claim to fame, so to speak. But thankfully, was stopped. Yeah. I wonder if those other people, the potential victims know, like in Columbine, you have that, you know, how they journaled about their mm -hmm. kill lists and stuff. And some of the people know that their name was on that list and they live with that. Mm -hmm. My. I, yeah, I don't know <laughs> if they were ever told told wow. that. I didn't see anything that related anybody else. They just referred to them in the appeals as like Jane Doe 1. Jane Doe too. Better that way. Yes. <laughs> All right, everybody. That is it. That is the Scream murder case out of Pocatello, Idaho. So we both want to take a moment and thank you all for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on and spread the word because that's how people find us or they stumble upon us. Leave us a review. Leave us some comments. Send us a message. Go to criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. Get those show notes and links. We do a little bit of extra work for you guys because we love you. We love our listeners. Yes. So as always, if you see something, say something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle that takes to solve a crime. Like Cassie's boyfriend, Matt, who initially didn't tell them about Draper and Amachek coming over. This just happened to be after his polygraph interview. And he's having that post interview. And he mentions, oh, well, yeah, we had friends stop by. Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, that put them on to these two individuals. And of course, within days, you know, they had them arrested. So this episode will be coming out the week of Thanksgiving. We do record ahead of time, but we want to wish all of you a stressless and enjoyable holiday with your families, both the ones you are born into and the ones you have found. So until next time, guys, bye. bye.